Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. We are sitting in the studios of Authentic Biochemistry in the inland Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. Finally, a nice spring day. This is the 18th of April, Easter Monday, 2022. Um. At this point where I know I'm going to be finished with diabetes and I keep on adding a slide or two uh, to my mind and to my notes before I come on. And uh, I started adding several slides today because <clears throat> I was thinking about uh, brown adipose tissue and white adipose tissue and the great disparity between the rodent model and the human system. I've talked about it a couple of times in lecture here. Um, I think I might mention it once or twice again, uh, but I've, what I've finally decided to do is make that an entirely different topic. Um, and it'll be a topic based on comparing animal models to human studies, where there is a tremendous disparity and where there are a lot of assumptions that are carried into the clinical work <clears throat> and that's how uh, research proposals are written and hypotheses are generated uh, and experiments uh, created, performed, and data accumulated. The problem with that is making that leap of faith from the rodent model to the human. And I've said it many, many times on this podcast and, and also in my lectures for the last 30 plus years, that animal models are animal models and what works in the animal, particularly in rodents, um, is not more than 50% reproducible in true clinical studies. And even with 50%, which basically means you can't rely on it at all because that's a failing grade of 50% out of 100. <clears throat> um, I'm being generous because really the most of the research is done in rodents, even with the great knockout studies that started with Mario Kopecki in the late um, 70s into the 80s and 90s. And a lot of the um, recombinase work uh, where we're able to introduce genes, get them expressed and then silence them all using uh, transcription factors and nested sets of nucleic acid that can allow us to flip out or remove or alter the promotion of genes at will in living systems by an induction process, usually by some promoter that gets turned on by, say, a carbohydrate or maybe light or something like that. Yes, light's even used in animal models. But all that said, uh, I would say that the Animal research is absolutely vital to continue because we can do things in animals, obviously, because of ethics and simply because we wouldn't want to do it with humans. Um, that is a, uh, the kind of experiments you can do. And those experiments are valuable, particularly when you do knockout studies and you look at gene expression levels and then you see how metabolism is altered. And then, you know, that's like the basis. That's the um, architectonic level. And then beyond that, looking at physiology, looking at responses like in the immune system, 
nutritional activation, turnover of lipoproteins, all of that kind of work is sequelae to um, basic alteration of gene expression. And with the discovery of epigenetics, um, which was always there, I think philosophically it was there even back in Galen's days, um, certainly Plato in the Timaeus, which I listened to recently on a um, LibriVox recording and I read again over Christmas, um, which is Plato's uh, cosmology uh, dialogue. And a, an intelligent fellow named Timaeus is given most of the um, feed time on that dialogue. Socrates basically says nothing. <clears throat> um, but in the Timaeus, you get a whole span of descriptors. And at the end of that uh, cosmological, um, evolutionary, um, theological, and of course, superintending philosophical edge, on why is there life and how life operates and how life proceeds from conception to death and what causes disease. I found many nuggets where one could argue that Plato was discussing epigenetic changes. That is taking a foundation that comes from creation and that foundation altering through space and time because of the environment. And basically, that's what epigenetics is, it's, you know, gene expression. He didn't use those terms, but basically he was talking about that uh, 300 BC, before that, 380 BC. Uh, so, okay, uh, that was a long introduction, but let's get into this. And by the way, I'm not being apologetic at all. I'm just finishing diabetes and, you know, I'm taking it where it leads me. You know, when I'm finished, I'll be finished. Now, we talked about adipocyte mitochondria. There's a great deal of literature on this, again, in the animal model, particularly the mouse and the rat. But when you have mitochondria, active mitochondria in adipose tissue, the mitochondria, of course, are going to be generating a lot of ATP because of the TCA cycle and because beta oxidation is powerful there. Remember that the white adipose tissue is adipogenic Whereas brown adipose tissue, because it has a lot of mitochondria and therefore a lot of iron, that's why it's, uh, it's got a coloration that looks reddish brown. You get PPAR gamma and CEBP as transcription factors. That generates new adipocytes going from pre-adipocytes to mature. You also get what's called browning or beiging. Uh, of white adipose tissue, which is associated nearby, proximal to brown adipose tissue. Again, all animals, animal research. And so you get what's known as WAT browning. And of course, the genes that are expressed in that process include PGC1-alpha, which is involved in mitochondrial biogenesis. And of course, UCP1, which is that uncoupling protein that binds fatty acid and then when it binds fatty acids, it allows protons to move through that uncoupling protein, and when, and which is embedded in the mitochondrial membrane. And when that occurs, heat is generated. And so that's non-shivering thermogenesis, right? Brown fat thermogenesis, which is very important for organisms that live out in the wild, in particular things like rodents. Um, 
that ha- that don't have a very strong uh, layer of integument associated with uh, keratin and long and long hair. Now that's distinct from humans and lots of other mammals if you think about it. Um, so UCP1 and PGC1 alpha are uh, tuned up during the browning response because of adipocyte mitochondria. You also get what's known as adaptive thermogenesis. That is when animals get into the cold, UCP1 is increased in expression as transcriptionally, again, in the rodent model. And so is PGC1 alpha. So you make more mitochondria and those mitochondria are thermogenic and gener- you know, they generate heat in that adipose. Insulin sensitivity, which is the reason that um, we're interested in it from a biomedical perspective, is also enhanced because you have adipocyte mitochondria. Now, again, this should be put out with a, put out with a huge caveat. It's not simply that you have mitochondria and you get higher insulin sensitivity. It means that what occurs because there's adequate amount of energetics and you can do a lot of beta oxidation of fatty acids, you can, you can trigger the uh, AKT pathway, which is going to allow for more protein synthesis through mTOR. But you're also going to be able to mobilize more GLUT4 because you have insulin uh, sensitivity is good because these cells are intact and not degrading because of the protoxicity of the fatty acids. GLUT4 can make the surface and more glucose can be brought in. So the adipose tissue takes on the reigning compositability to, to be uh, sensitive to insulin binds its receptor and then insulin causing that phosphorylation cascade through the IRS proteins, mobilizing GLUT4 to the surface. So, of course, because adipocyte mitochondria can carry out electron transport, there's more oxidative phosphorylation. And there's also what appears to be better lipid homeostasis. So you have a high level of expression of perilipin, which is the major protein that allows for um, acyl triacylglycerol lipase to bind to the surface of the lipid droplet and allow for a regulated um, production of free fatty acids. Now, regulated production allows for then the fatty acid to bind to serum albumin and to lipoproteins, make it to the serum, make it to the liver, so that you get, in a roundabout way, a better lipid homeostasis because you're able to regulate that lipase activity via the perilipin binding to the membrane within the oil droplet of the brown adipose tissue. Okay, So I think that summarizes it. A lot of other studies in animal models have been looked at. Yes, the mitochondrial activity does allow for, um, again, beta oxidation. And that, uh, uh, excuse me, yeah, for beta oxidation, which means you're going to get a lot of ATP produced. There is an adipogenic program that's also maintained, of course, because of the mitochondria. uh, And that's because you need ATP to do any kind of anabolism. So uh, it doesn't mean that you're just able to carry out beta oxidation. Obviously, you're still regulated there with acetylcocarboxylase, with malonyl-CoA, all that that I've discussed in great detail, how you control either fatty acid synthesis or fatty acid 
oxidation, and those those same controlling mechanisms, all those phosphorylation cascades, control of the glycolysis, the control of the fatty acid synthesis, all that is still in play. Right? Um, now, a lot has been discussed about the fact that you get a lot of reactive oxygen made. And this is indeed always the case when you have a lot of mitochondria and you have a lot of electron transport because you're generating you know, electrons and the proton pumping right across the membrane, intermitochondrial membrane out to the intramembranous space and the protons pumping back into through the ATPase. And during that process, you are reducing molecular oxygen one step at a time, one electron at a time from O2 all the way to H2O. And when that occurs, you make a series of semi-reduced forms of oxygen and that's reactive oxygen. That's what it is. Unpaired electrons, what radicals are, right? And so, as it turns out, when you can control that in the adipose, you actually generate a signaling pathway. And that signaling pathway allows for the initiation of adipocyte differentiation from mesenchymal stem cells. And adipogenesis can be inhibited um, when you add mitochondrially targeted antioxidants. So you can see a role there in how reactive oxygen is, is utilized in an anabolic mode via signaling through transcription factors. Okay, And basically, this is kind of like a repair process or setting up for a repair process and a healthy redox system. Okay, So this is totally... Uh, reasonable to understand that you're going to get um, positive uh, uh, mitochondrial and, and adipocyte um, biology and biochemistry because of some reactive oxygen produced. And of course, you're going to get that from mitochondrial activity. So in the animal model, adipose tissue is going to play a very important role in temperature regulation and of course, very, not as, as much and very less, in fact, in the adult human and, and even the very young human. Right? But adipose tissue is a key organ system for lipid homeostasis and carbohydrate homeostasis. And I would argue also protein, amino acid, nucleic acids. The whole biochemical um, rheostat is controlled by lipid metabolism. And adipose, of course, stores lipids, mostly in the form of triacylglycerol. And so that would, because you store the lipid in the adipose, as long as there's an active adipogenesis going on, when there's normal amount of calories in the diet and you're not putting on excessive uh, trunk visceral fat, which can then lead again to this whole aspect of dyslipidemia, what you're able to get, of course, is the prevention of lipid accumulation outside of the adipose. And you know what happens when you get the lipid accumulation in the cardiovascular system? You get atherosclerosis, you get heart failure, right? You get heart disease. You also get lung disorders, and you also can have problems in the central nervous system with high levels of apolipoprotein-mediated tricyclosterol and phospholipid lipid transfer into the CNS, yes, through the blood-brain barrier, especially during aging when it starts to degrade. 
Now, in obesity, you get excessive lipogenesis. You get a high level of lipids in the adipose and everywhere else in the body. And remember, also, you start to get adipokine resistance. Particularly, we talked about leptin and adiponectin. And when that's occurring, again, in the central nervous system that controls the HPA axis, then that leads to all kinds of problems with the appetitive state, the gustatory state, nutritional bias against um, controlling the stomach uh, release of the digestate into the small intestine, the whole control of those hormones from the pancreas and from the liver and from the small intestine leading up to the central nervous system, controlling appetite, the whole POMC, NPY, a goody-related protein motif of regulation of feed intake in mammals becomes corrupted, right? And so the argument is that people continue to eat because the stomach no longer can regulate the fact that it's full, sending out uh, basically um, changes in barometric pressure that ultimately lead to a decrease in the appetite in the functional mammal, right? Now, remember, I've always emphasized with humans with free will, there's an entire component here that you just don't see in the animal model. You can make animals obese and you can turn them on to uh, certain kinds of drugs, which are habit forming like cocaine, ethanol, things like this. But those are a mimetic too. Those are a surrogate to understanding addiction in humans. They're not the same thing. Likewise, people can get addicted, and that's a term that's I'm using with huge quotation marks around it, scare quotes, because people can be can overeat and overeat and overeat, and it stimulates um, a uh, enough of the enkephalin and endorphin pathway. From that POMC locus, which is supposed to be controlling appetite, to diffuse that and people feel more and more comfortable the more they eat. And this is how they get more and more obese. But the overriding factor is the will to choose to eat more, to gain more weight and to pay little attention to exercise and particularly to skeletal muscle activity and particularly as people age. So that's when you start getting IL-6 pathways and TNF-alpha pathways. You get the pro-inflammatory response. Remember all the eicosanoan talk we had, the prostaglandins, the leukotrienes, the thromboxanes, the ameliorative uh, prostacyclins, the P450, EE, you know, the epoxy, eicosatetraenoic acids, triggering uh, either an anti-inflammatory from the EETs or from a pro-inflammatory from hydroxy, eicosatetraenoic acids, and then basically turning on then the entire pro-inflammatory cytokine pathways from endothelial cells and, of course, from circulating leukocytes and lymphocytes. And you're on your way to chronic inflammation and that leads then to the paradigm of obesity, uh, liver disease, lung disease, kidney disease, central nervous system disorders, including Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, as well as frank type 2 diabetes after metabolic syndrome, passing right through that. Right? So these are all issues that become really important when uh, you think about the whole lipid metabolic system. Now, 
Reactive oxygen species activate directly the uncoupling protein 1. Now, this occurs in BAT, or brown adipose tissue. And that occurs in the animal models when there is, a, there is a, an exposure to the cold. And what happens is you get an increase via the HPA axis of noradrenaline. And noradrenaline stimulates this whole UCP1 expression pathway to increase thermogenesis. However, the regulator of reactive oxygen in that brown adipose tissue is not the same in humans. It doesn't function the same way. Okay? Noradrenaline doesn't even really demonstrate an axis like that. So this whole push to say we could move white adipose tissue to brown adipose tissue, I already told you all the problems with that because of the reactive oxygen, right? And because of the requirement to have both beta oxidation and adipogenesis going on in the adipose to, to accommodate lipid turnover and lipid regulation, right? All of that becomes corrupted when you start producing more mitochondria against what normally is occurring with the entire neuroendocrine immunoepigenome pathways that are generated in humans and not in animal models. Now, I'll add a couple of other things here because they're interesting. There's a protein called selenoprotein P or SAP or selenop. And that protein, which of course is selenium in it, it's bound selenium, negatively correlates with brown adipose tissue activity. And this has been shown in humans. Animal model is replete with it. It has been looked at in humans and there is evidence for this. And again, if you humans too, if they're given a cold exposure, they respond similarly as all mammals do. But again, these are these are poorly defined, not well thought out experiments. And they're usually usually using fingers or toes or some other part of the human body that's exposed to cold and then looking in that tissue using things like ultrasound and PET, CT and whatnot, so it's non-invasive, to look to see if there's any increase in oxidative phosphorylation, you know, using substrates that don't get metabolized or using fluorodeoxyglucose, this sort of thing, right? So you have to be very careful to know what that data really says. All right, that's what I'm saying. But now in the mouse, it works pretty well. So a physiological cold exposure downregulates this selenoprotein P, specifically in the brown adipose. And in fact, when you knock out that protein, I told you that's the wonderful thing you can do in mice, right? Using homologous recombination to knock out a gene. Um, that's a classic way, and you can use LOXP CRE or you can use any number of uh, recombinase systems, right? You can use CRISPR as well, yes. But anyways, when you knock out this uh, SEP protein in mice, you show higher rectal temperatures and a concomitant UCP1 self-enylation. Okay, so sulfinic acid is covalently now bound to the UCP. So basically, that's SOH, right? That's sulfinic acid, right? And so 
what happens there, okay, is kind of interesting. You get UCP1 self-inhalation during cold exposure in the brown adipose of the mouse, okay, with the knockout of that protein. So SEP treatment to brown adipocytes eliminates the, the noradrenaline-induced mitochondrial ROS production. And it does so by upregulating a glutathione peroxidase gene. And you get impaired cellular thermogenesis when all this goes down. Okay? So what they found in the animal model, again, high-fat diet or a high-sucrose diet, either one, elevates serum the, this is back to the normal expressing mouse model. When you give them high fat or high sucrose diet, it elevates serum SEP levels and it tanks elevated noradrenaline induced thermogenesis in bat in, a, uh, in an SEP knockout mouse. Okay. So when you, when you add back to expression, so that looks like SEP then is an intrinsic factor which induces reductive stress that impairs thermogenesis in brown adipose tissue. And that's why people are interested, I mean, researchers now are interested in looking at whether or not that could be a therapeutic target for obesity and diabetes because of this whole regulation of uh, brown adipose tissue activity. Again, that is a lot of animal model research. Now, remember, mitochondrial proteins responsible for thermogenic respiration have a very specialized mechanism in the brown adipose and also what's called beige, which means increasing mitochondrial genesis. And it seems like all of that does function in non-shivering adaptive thermogenesis to cold temperatures, and that diet variations can have an impact on that thermogenesis because the argument is energy balance because of the mitochondria. So UCP1 functions as a, this is very specifically what it does, a long-chain fatty acid and proton symporter. That's why it uncouples and generates heat. So it, what it does, it transports one long-chain fatty acid and one proton through that uh, intermitochondrial membrane. So long-chain fatty acids, however, remain associated with the transporter via hydrophobic interactions. And that then results in a, an apparent transport of the protons essentially activated by the long-chain fatty acid. And so what occurs is a dissipation of the mitochondrial proton motive force. And that converts what would normally be a bioenergetic component, making ATP, pushing those protons, remember, back through the F, not F1, ATPase, complex five in the mitochondria. It converts that energy of basically full oxidation pathway into just sensible heat. Heat instead of ATP. So inadvertently then it regulates the production of reactive oxygen by the mitochondria. Again, why? Because you're getting partially reduced forms of molecular oxygen because you're slowing down the electron transport chain. 
So there is some regulation to this activity. So it has no constitutive, this UCP-1 system, no constitutive proton transporter activity. And so it has to be activated by, by, by long-chain fatty acids. Okay. It is, however, inhibited by purine nucleotides. So both purine nucleotides and long-chain fatty acids will bind to the cytosolic surface of the transporter at that membrane interface. And they will directly compete or activate or to inhibit. Okay. So when you get purine nucleotides, you shut this UCP1 down. When you get higher levels of long-chain fatty acids, you tune it up. So obviously that could be considered an ATP fatty acid sensor. That's probably where it comes from. And it makes sense that noradrenaline would be involved because it's a stress response, right? It's typical uh, for this to occur. All right, let me check my time here because I'm worried I might be getting over it. Oh, I'm almost done, yeah. Huh, amazing. Okay, I got uh, less than a minute. Uh, I think I'm going to stop here because I'm really almost done with this whole thing. I just wanted to give you a little bit more about this whole, I want to tell you about the selenium protein. I want to tell you about the animal studies. And I really wanted to get you to understand my perspective. This is my perspective. And it's not an opinion so much as it is a dialectical analysis, which means I come up with propositions. I, I determine whether or not those propositions can be used as premises and then premises to yield uh, via evidence an understanding and a conclusion. And that's what a dialectical analysis is, of course, as opposed to a mere opinion like saying, well, I've kind of glossed the literature and the literature seems to say that animal models aren't always uniformly associated with clinical research, uh, that is human studies. No, I've actually looked at the scientific literature. I've looked at the plenum of it. I've looked at the floor detail of how the experiments are done. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. Bye for now.